Welcome to the panel discussion, Security in Finance. To start with, I would like to thank the partners of the conference. Main partners including the Ministry of Finance of the Slovak Republic, the National Bank of Slovakia, Visa, Binance, Blick and 365 Bank. Supporters including Porto, CRIF, Slovak Credit Bureau and FUMBI. Expert guarantees, of course, FINAS, the FinTech and InsureTech Association of Slovakia, which is great to work with, which have the expertise in the field. And I would like to introduce my panel here. We have Maria Potanchukova, experienced AML expert. We have Lukas Steiniger, co-founder of Steiniger Law Firm. Lukas Bonko, our AML expert, and Juraj Forgac, CEO of FUMBI. So we have a great panel, and we're talking about security and finance, so hopefully we'll not only talk about AML, but a few attached subjects as well. So that is the panel. And we're lucky, the whole panel is here, no online panel this time, which I do appreciate. Maria, as an AML expert, what, what do you think are the main challenges, hurdles with AML in Europe now, given the current situation and geopolitical situation? Okay, so nice to meet you all. Uh, first of all, it's really, I'm really glad for this opportunity to be here. And yeah, it's, it's quite a tough question for, for the beginning of this panel discussion, to be quite honest with you, <laughs> because there are a lot of, you know, challenges and... Uh, open uh, open topic in the field of um, AML um, regulation, uh, sanctions compliance, etc. Uh, yeah, like take uh, Russian uh, recent invasion in, in Ukraine as as an example. And basically, what we can see in, in field of you know uh, all AML uh, regulation um, uh, is that there's a significant shift from. Uh, basic AML uh, due diligence uh, sanction uh, compliance towards the uh, sanctions because prior to the Russian invasion, um, just, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but sanctions was not even like a real topic in, in terms of, you know, obliged entities, regulations, etc. It is like, it's, it's something you recognize you are supposed to do it. Of course, there's law, and it's like, okay, sanctions, we, we do some sanction screening, uh, we do have some procedures for that, but yeah, it's, it's pretty much it about the, um, from, you know, from the perspective of uh, regulated subjects. But once we've experienced the invasion from Russia to, to Ukraine, it was like the all topic that, that matters in, in terms of regulatory um, uh, framework for, you know, EMI, banks, payment institutions, crypto firms, especially crypto firms, I, I would expect, because uh, it's like, okay, you, you process payments via uh, some um, correspondent banks, or uh, maybe you have uh, direct access to clearing, and now all of a sudden everybody's asking, okay, and, and tell, me, tell me more about your compliance, by the way. How are you handling it? Uh, are you able to recognize the, the sanctions entities in, in your books, in, in your um, payment processing? Um, so yeah, that's, that's a huge, huge challenge um, to, to name just as one. <laughs> okay, and since you're representing TrustPay, what is TrustPay doing in this area? 
Uh, well, trust pay uh, was always um, you know, uh, fully compliant in terms of both AML and sanctions. Um, yeah, I believe we are really good example in you know, sanctions, screening compliance, and, and all the stuff. It, it doesn't really cut us red-handed in, in, in terms of that, but I believe this is mostly topic about some small entities, uh, some, some startups, which trust pay is definitely not. Uh, maybe there's good questions about how crypto companies um, handling this topic, whether they may be even able to you know, comply with all those regulation, uh, regulation challenges in, in terms of this um, topic. It's, it's not that easy. So I may appreciate some input from... You're right, please. Um, yeah, I think I need to step into the ring here <laughs> a little bit. So thank you for having me. Um, what I would like to highlight here is that um, the situation is nothing new to us because there have been or there has been a um, very hard stance towards crypto companies in traditional finance sector since uh, ever. And, and TrustPay can, can witness to that, uh, that um, even if they are open to some uh, extent to crypto business models, still they are considered risky and they need to apply some additional Measures and this is actually something that everybody does and has been doing uh, since like one or two years. And by everybody, I mean everybody who is even who even wants to do it, because majority of banks and financial uh, industry partners just uh, just don't want to deal with it. But those who who want those strictly um, check if uh, if the crypto company um, is compliant or not and how the compliance is done. And basically, uh, if we want to onboard with a fintech company or a bank, uh, we usually agree upon um, sample procedures on a weekly basis where we prove case by case that all the, all the compliance steps were taken as uh, scheduled in our AML policy. So that's something that has been here for a long time. We have not uh, seen any specific increase uh, of... Um, of the demand, but uh, what I can say is that it's very difficult to do um, real AML and the real counterterrorism financing uh, prevention if crypto companies and and banks just do not cooperate. So if if we are if we need to go to Lithuania to get a bank account, um, it, then then it's quite quite difficult for Slovak financial intelligence unit or for the police. Uh, to to be able to to deal with it, and basically what we agreed is that uh, we will be the one who would be freezing the funds actually uh, on the crypto account rather than rather than um, in the traditional banking environment it would it would happen uh, probably on the customer's account in the bank so um it's it's quite complicated and uh, what i can see uh, is that um, there is some also shift towards uh, counterterrorism financing activities which are quite d different from aml in terms that in terms of the um, of the focus and it's not only about prevention but about the um, quickness of reaction if there is a threat and that's something that is very interesting to me and something that we also want to focus on Thank you. And uh, Lukas Bonko, what is your take in general terms on AML 
and the current situation? Well, as was already said, um, now nowadays companies are looking on the sanctions list, and uh, what has uh, happened in the Ukraine and Russia has changed plenty of things in the response of the new sanctions. And now uh, it is really important that uh, every company rechecks their port portfolio of client, uh, reperform the customer due diligence, and. Um, I think it is best if the company has every procedure automatized because mostly the smaller companies are doing this in manual way and this is, this is not an option for the future. If you want to onboard more clients, you need to have some level of automatic procedures to recheck and to request update of the due diligence documents and so on. Uh, but I can, couldn't agree more that it is very important that uh, the sanctions are followed. It is a current topic because uh, Slovakian companies and in general European companies uh, have or had plenty of clients from the Russia and uh, sanctioned countries. But uh, new, new risks in the AML regulation uh, has arised. Uh, I can mention one company in Slovakia uh, which is quite unlucky um, that they have completely same name as a company on the OFAC list, uh, what is the uh, sanction list, and uh, they were uh, actually um, fr frozen on some transactions, especially outside of the EU, and they are not linked to Russia uh, anyway. So uh, I would suggest to any company uh, to check also uh, deeper uh, whether the company is actually on the sanction list because you can uh, hurt your clients and uh, they, they should be just unlucky because of the name. So uh, this is one thing what the old level of automatical and digitalization procedures omitted that um, there should be also the second level, deeper level checks and more and more companies getting into the trouble. Uh, and then there is a problem with the regulatory authority, of course, you know, when they receive plenty of uh, STRs or suspicious transactions reports, uh, they are not able to respond in quick way. I'm speaking generally not about Slovakia, but uh, in general way. Uh, so this is something to be improved on the level of the companies, not to have uh, reports which are uh, not valid, and on the level of the regulatory authorities to um, have prompt uh, response to uh, any any uh, STR. And definitely um, we should also focus on the uh, new obliged persons because uh, from the beginning of the AML regulation in the EU every year um, we or every iteration of the AML directive, now we have fifth, uh, sixth is ongoing, uh, we receive new uh, obliged persons uh, and I see big potential for the education of the companies uh, because on the new lists are companies which are not aware that they are somehow obliged to do something in the AML. Uh, so I think the education of the companies is very important. Just a quick reaction to one of the topic mentioned, uh, which I really appreciate, which is the you know false positive 
problem in, in terms of sanction, sanction screening compliance. And I really appreciated input. And yeah, we can say, well, Teflak, you have like the, the same uh, name, company name, like the uh, entity on the sanction list. But that's not how we should actually approach this problem. I, I couldn't agree more. Because it's like, when, when it, in terms of sanction screening compliance, you have a lot of false positive. And there actually are ways how to you know, detect whether the, the company in the payment details is the same as, as the company identified on the sanction list or not. There are ways to do it. But it's, um, um, well, well, imagine you have like 30, 40 uh, payments in, in real-time block monitoring for, for the sanction screening compliance. It's, it's not even possible for, I assume, for smaller entities like startups. Um, maybe, yeah. Um, companies just recently established in, in terms of, you know, uh, payments uh, or, or crypto space. Uh, we, we can't really expect for them to, you know, em employ or hire three to five people just to manage san sanctions compliance. So that's a, a huge topic that needs to be discussed openly with regulators and financial intelligence units as well. One uh, remark, isn't that where RegTech comes in, in reality? So oh. you can eliminate five, six people doing compliance? Yes, and uh, I would like to say that false positives, I think that's a completely usual daily situation. And usually uh, correct, uh, correct positives or the, the, the true positives are quite rare. So, um, but it, it has also another, another angle to it. Uh, if your funds get frozen because the company didn't check if you are or if you are not on, a, on the sanction list, then your, your rights have been clearly violated and the company most definitely is liable for any damages that may arise from that. And uh, this reminds me of the other problem in the financial sector when it comes to AML that's called de-risking, and we are back to crypto companies. So if uh, if it if it seems easier to just uh, do it somehow in bulk and uh, don't care for the collateral damage, then uh, such situations arise, and they will arise. So um, the reg tag is very very important here, and um, I would say that it doesn't solve all the false positive cases, of course. But it can substantially reduce the reduce the load. Yeah, exactly. I would just come into it. Uh, yeah, we have quite experience with that uh, with several clients, especially from the crypto world today, uh, because we are specialized mostly on crypto. And and uh, we see, for example, that we have many clients from outside Europe, but establishing their presence currently in Europe, and they fall under the regulation. So so they have to somehow um, be in compliance with it and. Uh, the point is that they actually do not need to have physical presence here, but they need to fall under the regulations, and especially when it comes to to fulfill some obligations towards local authorities. Yeah, and but they actually they're doing very well because they use modern technologies, which is decreasing number of manual input they have to get into it, and it's like like really ninety percent of cases is. Uh, handled by uh, automated solutions, and then they can have one internal guy, which doesn't have to be slower guy, who will only then after they check the situation, which if there is something uh, personal, which is on sanction list, or if there is operation which might, or there is a, 
there might be a problem there, it was not text and so on. And then they can have one people, in, uh, one man in Slovakia who will just, you know, communicate with government and go, go for it. But it's really well, minimum cases which are really then uh, only complicated. So automated solutions can today also for really, I would say, not small companies, companies, but for like serious companies um, uh, handle most cases. That's good to hear. So um, uh, you as um, working in the law firm, uh, you work as a liaison between the Slovak authorities as well as the foreign entities. Or um, can you please describe that process as well? How does it work when you when foreign entity exactly? Well, uh, for example, we work with clients on. Well, there are several models how to work, but when we have like small crypto exchanges you know, or small crypto clients. Uh, they have one IML officer, which is working with this slower guy mostly, uh, who is uh, working in a team with the uh, developers and uh, the, the management and so on. And they, they get support from Slovak law firm, for example, if they need to uh, handle or evaluate uh, cases which are really urgent or they have to really uh, somehow communicate with uh, financial unit uh, and so on. So. And it doesn't have to be costly, actually, because, uh, as I said, most cases are dealt by automated solutions, and, and then when you need to, you know, somehow use the law from then, you will use it. Obviously, very good. That's a clear answer. I would like to get back to Lukas Bonku. You mentioned European Union and regulation per se from... Uh, from Brussels or higher authorities. Do you think uh, the AML uh, framework should be changed or uh, implemented differently? Do you think we need more input from Brussels to ease the current situation or do you think it's good as it is? That is a very good question. Uh, and I think it should be improved. Um, I'm not saying about easing uh, the regulation, but uh, rather to have a look on the efficiency and uh, unintended consequences, because uh, the regulation in current uh, way was um, implemented uh, from the point of view that, okay, uh, this is our aim, this is our target, we want to uh, do something, but it was uh, only in the way uh, that you have seen uh, the AML problem, CFT problem, but uh, they did not correctly measured the impact. The unintended consequences, as was mentioned, the, the risking is one of the problem. Uh, debanking is the problem. It means that uh, the, the financial companies rather get rid of the uh, riskier clients or the clients which could be on some sanction list, but at the end they are just a false positive. And now we can lose the GDP, we can lose the companies uh, in the, uh, Europe. They, they, can, they can go to different uh, countries outside of the EU. So I think we are losing the potential. We are um, creating not just the bureaucratic burden, but as well the, the burden in the meaning of the costs for the companies. So definitely uh, we should see more risk-based approach which is obviously mentioned in, in the regulation that there is some proportionality and so on, and so on. but uh, there is some, something called uh, national risk assessment. And uh, within this national risk assessment, there should be some uh, level of the measure of costs 
of AML within the companies and what is actually uh, the regulatory authority getting from the regulation. So you should have a scale uh, with the weight of the costs and a way uh, of what have you achieved, whether the costs are not higher than the uh, achieved aims. Uh, and th this should be within the statistics uh, of all EU countries. And on the basis of results, we should have a look on the best practices uh, on the uh, countries which have the most efficient regulation and most efficient way of implementing uh, AML to change it in the correct way. Uh, now, this is probably not done properly on the EU level. Uh, let's go into the uh, outside of the financial world. Uh, we have some car accidents. We have proper car accident statistics. And obviously, what is the easiest way to get rid of the car accidents? Okay, you decrease the maximum speed, let's say to 20 kilometers per hour. It means that, okay, probably you will get much less car accidents, but the impact on the overall economy will be huge. Let's imagine that everybody will be driving 20 kilometers per hour. Uh, so we are uh, taking some risks to, to allow cars go faster. We know that it will be easier to maybe to ban all the cars, but we, we actually um, do not do this thing. And the same approach should be in the future considered in the uh, changes of the AML to weigh the risk and to decide what is the best way to do it, not, not just to... Um, decrease the output of our companies and uh, our economies and to attract new new uh, companies into the not just the financial sector uh, and it is very important to uh, consider um, European borders of course what is uh, happening in the EU uh, should be um, discovered and uh, controlled by other authorities, not just the financial authorities, but the standard uh, enforcement units like the police and so on. Uh, and we should uh, definitely control our borders. What's happening on the transactions outside of the borders of the EU? So when the company is receiving money outside of the EU uh, or is sending money outside of the EU, okay, this is the border control for the financial transactions. Where should uh, we be focused more, I think? Uh, because the AML is actually not uh, the, the primary problem. Uh, this is just the consequence. Because when, when somebody needs to um, launder the money, it means that there was a crime which was not caught by the police before it happened. So this is like some kind of outsourcing of uh, some law enforcement uh, obligations to uh, private sector. I think AML is good, but it should be improved and to be more efficient and definitely there are best practices which can be followed by uh, EU in the future. So in other words, a little bit east within the Union and harsh and on the borders to the Union. So uh, to make compliance inside the EU easier to follow. Yes, uh, especially for the startup companies because it is difficult for startups to establish a company and 
first thing you need to think of is okay that you need to hire a team of the compliance guys and you don't have the sales, you don't have the uh, technical persons and so on, but you need to first think about the compliance. What is in some way very good because you, you are uh, doing a good thing for the uh, end customers and you are protecting the customers, but uh, there should be some proportionality and uh, to level all the requirements uh, of the compliance and of the business. So. Even large banks fail, not only startups in this area. So and there's many cases in the European Union when large banks been debanking fully legal customers due to false positives and uh, people's companies have went bankrupted and there have been lots of tragedies in this also from debanking from large banks. So it's not only the startups that makes mistakes here. That's correct, yes. And uh, the difference between the uh, large bank and the startup is that, okay, the large bank can uh, withstand some, some kind of fines, but startup um, cannot. So uh, the fine for the startup can be like complete disaster and uh, the business can be closed down. But larger banks, larger financial institutions can withstand this pressure. So this is another thing, but the banking is, is a huge problem, I think. Juraj, please comment. Absolutely. Uh, I would like to go back and uh, start with the last, last point, last item, which is uh, the banking. And uh, what is the first problem of a startup? Uh, in a fintech or crypto industry, and it's not compliance. The first problem is, shall I have the bloody bank account? Because you will not. And that's a problem because it's, you are obliged as an entrepreneur, as a company, to have a bank account for the tax reasons and, and other reasons probably as well. But um, So if, if, if anybody of you wants to uh, set up a new startup in crypto industry in Slovakia, you will have to obtain this virtual currency service um, license or trade license, so to say. Uh, and as soon as you have it in your trade register, no bank will ever open a bank account for you in Slovakia. So, and no bank will ever ask about your compliance uh, because they just don't analyze it. Uh, we have uh, actually done quite a lot of work here and asked every bank around so your only option is to open a bank account in the UK or in Lithuania or possibly in German-speaking countries uh, where there are uh, crypto-specifically um, focused uh, banks which, which know what to do and where the regulators actually know what to do because there are quite sophisticated KYCC guidances, know your customer's customer, for the banks how to, how to actually handle the crypto companies. But in Slovakia, um, you are quite uh, you are done in the beginning, but you have still the small option to open a bank account in Lithuania, for example, in an e-money institution. If you want to set up a crypto company in Hungary, or Czech Republic, or Poland, uh, it's even more difficult. If you want to set up um, a crypto company in Hungary, uh, and you just obtain that similar registration as in Slovakia, no bank will open a bank account in Hungarian foreigns for you. And because it's Hungarian foreigns, you will never get any bank account, even if you are obliged to have one. So, and you, you even didn't even start to do, to do business at all. So 
this situation is clearly a catch-22. It, it doesn't work. And I would like to go a little bit deeper to the AML part. I totally appreciate uh, the, <laughs> um, let's say, delegation of these uh, duties to private sector. I'm really happy that uh, we as a society are collectively managing this risk rather than having one uh, centralized office coming after everybody. So that's one thing I, I like about it. Uh, and it helps us, the AML um, best practices help us really to avoid risky situations and uh, God knows we, had, we have had clients or um, wannabe clients who came with uh, bags of money and wanted to buy crypto and because we knew exactly how it works and what is around it, we, we knew how to handle it. So I'm happy for that. But in the end, what, what does it all boil down to? It just concentrates the criminality in, in a very well-organized cartels that can find the way through by having a cover in politics. Uh, we have seen that in Slovakia a lot, and we have seen that around in other countries a lot. We have seen it in every country in EU, including Germany. So um, I would say we are going after small criminality and we are forcing all criminal activity to come together and be super organized and, uh, and so on. Um, I don't think that the criminality as, a, as such, um, as you mentioned, the underlying crimes have been substantially reduced by this. So... Um, I don't know where it all goes, uh, and if we maybe just uh, focus on being rational, being proportional, maybe maybe it will it will help us to find the right balance. Thank you. Yeah. I just want to add, add, add something to the discussion. Is just uh, yeah. when we were talking about establishing the bank account. Yeah, that's a real problem for the business today, especially when you're working with crypto. But not only in crypto, actually, we got one very interesting case right now. It's a, we have one big logistic company from Turkey, one of the biggest, actually, working in Europe in many countries, and they got problem open bank account in Slovakia. Come on, they have working company in Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, but Slovak banks have problem open their bank account, and they, got, they wanted so many documents from them, like they were like startup or nobody. So, and that's the problem of the KYC and compliance department of the banks, because it's a Turkish company, they don't, Turkey, I don't know if, like Iran or I don't know which country it would be, it's Turkey, come on, it's a well-known company and they got problem with it. So it's really making problem to do proper business here. So uh, I would say, as Lukas also said, uh, it's really, problem when AML is uh, stopping the business, or is making a problem to establish a business as such, and without bank account you cannot actually do it. So, uh, so the main issue today is, I think, uh, the, the link between the real business world and the bank uh, and AML to make it easier how to work and evaluate the processes when it comes to AML and the risk approachment especially, uh, and not just, you know, stop or make a problem for business or companies to do business, you know. Open a bank account is one thing, let them operate and then we will see. For example, that's one attitude you can, you can have, actually. Open a bank account and then we will see. Maybe the process of opening a bank account should be standardized in Slovakia and the European Union, so banks can 
cannot come up with their own ideas what papers and documentation they need. Could that be a solution on an EU level since we discussed that before? We'll right talk more Benito. about that later, possibly. Right I for invite uh, Maria soon as well. I, just one I think uh, I think in Czech Republic it was the initiative the right for the bank account so, so, sorry could you repeat it right for the open the bank account for everyone you know that would be very nice as EU citizens have the right to open bank accounts by law been even going up to EU court and the EU commission in some cases but B2B is different there's contractual law and not uh, the EU law EU law is only protecting citizens not businesses Yeah, but if you have a address and you have company established according to European law, you are also considered as a European legal entity and you should have to write as well. But it should have. I completely agree with you, but that's not the current case. Only physical people and citizens have that right currently. Yeah. If we speak, that's the law, I can confirm. Yeah. If we speak about the rights, I would like to go much farther here. And I would like to say that, in my mind, it should be considered a human and civil right to have not, not bank account, but to have and operate any kind of money one wish to operate and possess. So that, that would mean uh, crypto, uh, non-custodial wallets, uh, whatever kind of money. Because if, if, if you consider, in, in the US, it's considered constitutional right uh, to carry a gun, Uh, and it's considered a matter of human dignity, how come the, the people are then somehow um, bullied around uh, what kind of money they use for the transactions? So there's about the rise, but I would like to come, come back to, to your point that maybe we should regulate more so that the banks don't do what they want to do. Um, I'm really scared about this approach and I would like to see the answer to Um, wrong impacts or um, unintended impacts of regulation in less regulation rather than in more regulation and I would, I would love to have more liberty in doing business and more liberty in doing business will focus or, or will result in more institutions wanting to do business just for the business reasons as we have crypto banks because they can, they can there, there can be crypto banks but Uh, in small countries like Slovakia and Czech, Czech Republic and so on, there is the competition is just too small. And I don't want to say it's a cartel, it's definitely not, but the competition is too small uh, for, for such uh, solutions to emerge. Yeah. Couldn't agree more with uh, you, right? Actually, the more regulation is not always necessarily the, the best idea, especially in terms of compliance. I mean, we have like uh, FATF recommendation, manual, Uh, European uh, directives, Slovak law, recommendation from Financial Intelligence Unit, National Bank of Slovakia, there's more guidelines, uh, as, as, you, as you can imagine, actually. And it's not that, uh, not the problem that we don't have guidelines, we don't know how to you know, conduct due diligence, and uh, we, we need more uh, you know, stricter approach from regulators. It's, it's not about it. And definitely, uh, what I would like to you know, point out here, Um, I am of the opinion that you know, obliged entities, regulated entities, uh, not just in, in Slovakia, across Europe, shouldn't really you know, uh, complement the um, work of law enforcement agency because we are operating in a public sector and it's not like we, we should be you know, prosecuting criminals. 
it's not the you know, responsibility uh, of uh, regulated entities operating in, in fintech sector. It really not. So uh, that's, that's maybe the problem because uh, especially huge banks are expected to do so, in, in my view. Um, maybe that's, that's the reason why many well-established banks are afraid to work with uh, high-risk entities in terms of I know, uh, geographical point of view, business model point of view, etc. So that's something we should uh, really appreciate and say it out loud. Please, Lukáš. Please, Lukáš. Very quickly, I completely agree. We need less regulation and better regulation because it is very difficult just to follow everything. And this is the problem of uh, the risking and uh, debanking. Uh, and the solution is not to have right to open the bank account because uh, at the end, uh, this is a private transaction, so so the bank should have the right to decide about the customer. This is one thing, and if uh, the banks are um, pressured to open anything, um, again, this is not very good because the risks of, from the AML are uh, burden on the bank. So if they will have to open anything then they possibly can get uh, fine or they can lose the license so uh, we need you know we need less regulation and to leave it on the uh, private transactions and the bank or the financial sector and all the obliged entities should not be prosecutors definitely uh, this is not our specialty we are, we are uh, providing services to customers we are not prosecuting officers therefore in some way, it should be within the uh, scope of the private companies, but you should not decide whether this is a criminal activity because you, you, you don't know the details that are behind it. And if uh, just um, you need to follow some rules, then you rather do not accept the client because you know if uh, you made some uh, wrong decision, you can get fined or lose the license. So you rather decide that you will not uh, onboard any high-risk client. And, but the, at the end, it should be standard client. And when we look on the risk, uh, national risk assessment, uh, you see that uh, the real offenses are very low compared to suspicious transactions reports. Uh, the seizures and the uh, frozen uh, assets and uh, the proceedings from the AML regulation is very low. Therefore, uh, the criminal activities are probably not lowered. They, they are just more sophisticated. So, um, as you mentioned, probably only the small fishes are uh, caught. And uh, we are losing all the complex and wrong transactions uh, because they, they, they are very, very sophisticated. So uh, I do not agree that we need more regulation, we need less, and uh, we should have more liberal approach to the business transactions, at least within the EU countries. Just a small um, comment or remark from my side regarding the SAR stop it, or suspicious activity report. Um, yeah, actually it's um, the way I see it, uh, there is a huge pressure from regulators, not necessarily in, in Slovakia, I mean, generally speaking, in, in Europe, to report as many SARs 
as, as possible. And it's um, not always the, the best approach uh, within, the, uh, within the sector because sometimes uh, obliged entities, especially banks, because yeah, banks are the obliged entities that report the majority of SARs in Slovakia, uh, they, I, I assume they report a transaction that they don't necessarily know what ex actually is, is wrong with the transaction. They just, okay, they have a feeling that maybe something, it, I just rather report it because it's, you know, safe way, it's easier way, and I, I just, I don't want to get fined at the end of the day or just lose a license, so I'll just report everything. And it just creates unnecessary burden for uh, financial intelligence unit officers as well because they have a lot of uh, suspicious transactions reported. And many of them, I would assume, doesn't really have any value added. So that's, that's a problem. And that's a lot of administrative work within the FIA, FIU to you know, somehow process those uh, reports. Um, and, yeah, and they don't have it maybe time to concentrate on things and the reports that are actually uh, meaningful. That's, that's my, um, that's my uh, way, way how, how to, you know, um, maybe it's, it's good to do something about it. And Please, please, Lukash. Very quick remark. Uh, the situation, as you mentioned, about the uh, suspicious activities uh, reports that the financial institutions rather report everything. This is, this is correct for some countries. Uh, Scandinavian countries, I'm from the region, and they're reporting more than anywhere else in the whole European Union. Uh, so the financial authorities, they're flooded with these reports and cannot do their job. But the banks are scot-free and have nothing to worry about. And but the other extreme, what is, what is not um, good, is uh, the France, for example. In France, you can report only if you know that this is the real uh, money laundering. But how can the financial institution know this? In, in some cases, maybe it is possible to know this information, but now in the France, they are completely delegating all the prosecutions, investigation, to the financial institutions or obliged entities in general. This was the situation maybe three years ago uh, from the last report. Maybe it has changed. So I'm speaking about the um, two, three years back in, in, the, in the history. But this is another extreme. What is maybe even more wrong for the companies because then you need to hire specialists to investigate all the reports. And the, the way of the reporting is uh, different between every country, uh, like the Netherlands uh, and the Germany. Uh, and for example, Italy is um, producing plenty of reports. And uh, they, they are reporting uh, more uh, things than uh, the other countries. And uh, of course, the Scandinavian countries. Thank you. Uh, please, Jura. Just, just 10 seconds. Um, in my mind, the, the problem here is that uh, if you have this organized criminality that, uh, that wants to go around the system somehow, uh, probably using some gastronomy networks to, to loan the cash, I guess, uh, but uh, even if they want to use bank accounts because they need to use them in the end somehow, uh, how convenient it is if all the financial institutions just flood the system with useless SARs. Um, so... If you remember in Slovakia, there has been some sort of 
um, network uh, <laughs> um, spread around the the government and uh, and other also in financial institutions uh, quite recently, and probably there are others as well. So it's much easier for them to hide in such a system if the uh, if the financial institutions just go around everything and chase every glittery thing around, and they just need to you know get one or two compliance officers responsible to, to allow them to, get, to keep the gate open for them and uh, nobody will ever notice it. So, and the other way to, to force the financial institutions to investigate is also uh, a wrong way, as, as Lukas said. So uh, it's definitely a problem of balance, a problem of hysteria, a problem of somehow finding the way together not to be penalized too much encouraging the private sector to be cooperative uh, in, in, a, in a civil, civil sense, civic sense of the word, to, to be uh, like proud citizens who want to help rather than people who just, you know, file reports not to get fined. Mm, and uh, this is how I see it as a, as a crypto company founder that uh, it's part of my responsibility to to prevent um, money laundering in, in some big scale. Uh, that's, that's why I am happy to do it, but uh, I would like to see it more relaxed and more in a cooperative uh, way, like a public-private uh, partnerships where we can discuss things and learn from each other rather than enforcement and, and panic and filing everything. Do we need an AML sandbox approach where you can try different uh, AML approaches and see how they work without any legal recussions? Could that be a solution? So uh, let me come back. <laughs> yeah, uh, for us and for anybody who wants to uh, set up a startup that would be an obliged entity, and there are new obliged entities as well, and I think... Maybe in the next uh, next uh, wave, even accountants will be obliged, and maybe they are even now. So, uh, so I guess um, it would be probably necessary to set up some sort of education and uh, a way how to learn how to do things without uh, without you know uh, being penalized for uh, for not doing it right from the start. Really get into the sandbox and start playing with it. My next question is kind of provocative. Have AML become a system of ticking the right boxes or actually fighting crime? Okay, so I may comment on that. Um, well, it really, it's a good question. And I'm not a real big fan of this ticking box exercise. But, um, you know, seeing the um, AML... ML compliance in practice for I don't know more than five, six years now, it is actually the case. It's um, not a good way to you know um, um, how to deal with uh, with the regulation and how to um, approach this thing. But actually, it is um, it is the problem. It's, it's a huge problem, especially for. Uh, uh, from my experience, for uh, huge and well-established banks, because they have a lot of compliance officer or officers, and they are not necessarily, um, you know, communicate with each other. It's like it really depends uh, 
who is dealing with your application. And sometimes you, you are lucky, sometimes you're not because you know, you're dealing with a compliance officer who's just you know, um, covering his, um, his job and just, okay, I, I don't want to get to any trouble with my superiors, uh, etc. So I'll just, um, okay, stick with this sticking bog exercise. And there is a company who's, who may have a problem because, okay, this, this uh, document is not entirely up to date and uh, I've just reviewed this ML program of this um, wannabe client of, of a bank as, as an example and uh, in my um, reasonable opinion this uh, ML program is not sufficient, not detailed enough so I just decided to okay, uh, reject the application and that's um, in, in, my, um, in my opinion a huge, huge problem. You're right. Yeah, um, I would like to uh, maybe uh, push the discussion a little bit uh, to, the, to the crypto direction uh, because we are seeing an emerging trend of, of Web3 and as we are uh, sitting here with the fintech experts and uh, legal experts in crypto, uh, that's something we can also, also discuss because uh, it's quite likely that you know, just connecting, so connecting your wallet to your browser uh, in, in a web-free environment will basically leave out the financial intermediaries. So uh, who will be the obliged entity then? Uh, that, that's, that's, that's my question here. Uh, will, will in the next wave the e-shops the e become obliged entities themselves? Uh, so uh, we also need to think about these perspectives because once web-free is fully propagated and technologically advanced, um, there will be no more need for uh, a lot of card processing in internet and so on. People will just connect their MetaMask or, or similar, similar private key solution and they will interact financially with any service they want in the internet. So who will, who will do this job then? That, that's, that's, I think, something that we, we, could, we could discuss here because in five years it's here. That is very true. We get more and more peer-to-peer -peer finance solutions. So, who is the middleman? Who will be sure that, that uh, the partner is compliant? Will that lay upon the, the peers themselves or some authority or how should this be solved? I don't think anybody in the legislative branch have been thinking about this to date. But it will come up soon, as you say, Uri. Uh, is there any proactive approach you could think of? Or, Lukas, you have something to comment here? Yeah, I wouldn't say the proactive approach, but uh, what I think will happen in the future is that uh, um, when we are talking, for example, about MetaMask, um, <laughs> there was a discussion, uh, or a led discussion uh, a few months ago with, uh, with my friends about it in crypto, and there might be an option that everyone uh, who will provide the services of such wallet will maybe have the option to, or will be obliged person. But MetaMask is self-hosted, and uh, you can have, uh, you know, yeah. it's it's really about the fact that you can uh, do the payments peer-to-peer -peer in Web3, and as, as long as you can connect your private keys to the browser, there is no provider of wallet in the end. Yeah, but might in the future happen that uh, only wallets which won't be self-hosted will be allowed. Now and now we come to the to the question of constitutional rights here, because Again. that that's, if that if that happens, then uh, we are really far away from uh, 
from our original democratic setup here because um, that would really definitely infringe of, uh, on our liberties to transact with each other. But what about bank accounts? No, it's not the same? Well, that's just the, pre you know, we are not limited to use the bank accounts in a theoretical way, only in practical way. So it, it's not in the law that a crypto company cannot open a bank account. And it's just a phenomenon that emerged somehow. It's, it's uh, definitely a different situation than if the law says you can't hold your money. So that's... Uh, there's a completely different um, angle, and if we if we are not allowed to hold our electronic money by the law, and we are obliged to have a provider of such service, we are no longer in the realm of uh, of um, of a liberal democracy. Yeah, it's true from the constitutional point of view. But as I said, if they want to find some solution, the solution has to be somewhere, and they will try to find it. So I think that's a one way how to do it. Another way is that if you want to connect your wallet to any services and use it, then the service provider has to you know, identify the owner of the wallet. So that's another option, which was actually on the table right now when the Mika was, uh, was uh, discussed. So there are several ways how to do it, actually. And I think one of them will take place, actually, and will happen. So we'll see which one of them will be. What about a solution with individual financial IDs from the authorities that make you as a person authorized to use different services because you can show where your money comes from? So that, that would be definitely one solution, uh, like European identity. Um, and the, then uh, we would speak about a new, new form of obliged entities because the e-shops could only provide services to somebody who has identified themselves. Um, well, uh, that's something that I would consider probably uh, much more okay than the other options we discussed, uh, because we are putting these ob obligations on the businesses rather than on individuals. But there is also another way, um, and that's basically online transaction monitoring and online KYT tools that can help businesses uh, track the history of, uh, of the payment on the blockchain and see if it comes from any criminal activity. So you don't even need to identify the, the actor if you identify the track of the money in the whole history of the blockchain somehow. Um, so maybe there are ways how to combine these two approaches so the people will, would get their identity which they could basically prove who they are and at the same time, the eShops can just, you know, scan the blockchain before getting the transaction. And uh, so these, these may be the solutions for future. Sure, but in any, in any phase of this, uh, if you're tracking transactions, you can track anything you want, but if there is no identification on, in one moment, then the, then the tracking of the transaction is useless, actually, because you don't know who is involved. Well, uh, how OFAC uh, lists uh, work for crypto, crypto addresses? Usually, there is a team of people scanning uh, the fundraising for the terrorist organizations um, or some addresses associated with individuals during a police investigation. Um, for example, somebody stole my cryptocurrencies, 
uh, I know who it is. I submit a filing to the to the police, and they start uh, connecting the address that I provided with that person. And there is a connection. So in in OFAC, they usually see that, for example, this organization is fundraising to this address. So that's how that address gets into the blacklist. Yeah, but there is some kind of identification actually because on the on the uh, police part, or, you know. So without the identification in any phase of this or in, in any moment of these transactions, if there there has to be some, otherwise you cannot cannot connect it to, to certain or to to some persons or area of persons. So. Uh, when we are talking about uh, the, the wallets as such, so there has to be identification in some in one moment if you wanna if you wanna do the KYC properly. So so probably these digital identity solutions would would help when yeah. interacting with shops, and for peer to peer payments you probably don't need it, and that could be quite a compromise we need here. But but we are not the regulators, so we can we can discuss anything we wish here. Well, we're still allowed to pay peer-to-peer -peer with hard-earned cash, so I don't really see any difference here when it's just peer-to-peer, -peer, especially if it's consumer-to-consumer -consumer more than consumer-to-business. Well, that, that's actually a very, nice, very good question today. When we, are talk, we are talking about uh, security and finance in terms of digital activities, but for example, let's talk about real estate business. It's very interesting. What happened now in the UK, for example, they... They, um, if you want to buy real estate in UK, you have to register in the registry officially, otherwise you cannot buy real estate in UK today. Or it's starting in 2023, I'm not sure right now. So as you can see also in Slovakia today, there is a lot of money laundering in real estates. Plenty of real estate agencies, they are still like selling uh, properties, taking money in cash and there is a, there's quite a big problem with it, and it's a million, million, dollar, a million euro business. So I would discuss also this area. And also not necessarily cash. Uh, there's real estate transactions where you pay with different assets instead, including equities and such transactions exactly. to, exactly. to uh, muddy the picture, basically. So instead of using cash or bank transactions, you pay with equities and similar solutions. About the cash, you cannot use peer-to-peer -peer, uh, payments in cash over uh, 15,000 euros. Definitely. But it's impossible to track it. That's what I'm trying to say yes. here. It, it is impossible, but uh, somehow um, at the end probably you uh, need a way to put it into the standard financial sector because um, in the normal way you cannot, for example, buy a car uh, in the cash it is restricted, so it, uh, therefore we have some restrictions on cash, especially in Slovakia, not in the Austria. In Austria, you, you can use cash completely freely. Uh, and about the real estate, uh, according to current uh, AML regulation in Slovakia, they are actually obliged entities. Probably they mm, just do not know it, or they don't do the AML procedures, but they, they are obliged entities. Good to know. Uh, what essential advice would you offer to companies seeking to create a robust AML program that is future-proofed right now? That's a new question for the whole panel. Robust advice to create an AML program designed for the future, starting implementation now. So just very short, what should companies do if they're 
or a startup, for example, not a current incumbent, but if you're starting from scratch, what robust advice would you give to them? Well, maybe I'll just quickly comment on that. It's not necessarily about the topic as, as we um, briefly touched before, the ticking bog exercise, but rather about some uh, trying to understand the needs of your customers, your business model, why the customers is actually willing to uh, use your services, what's your added value, and um, you know, just try to... Um, Try to use like common sense in terms of AML and not necessarily just follow every every single uh, letter of the law without even thinking about it. That's always a good approach. So not just an off-the-shelf reg tech solution, plug it in and hope it works. You wouldn't think that would work very well. It might, but not just without human uh, input. Because... Oh. So sorry, um, a Rectech solution can mostly help you with KYC, uh, with onboarding, but it won't help you with the AML CFT part at all, or just a little bit. You know, you know, you can ch check the sanction list, you can check the adverse media, um, or, or uh, politically exposed persons, but that's mo more about the KYC and onboarding part. Uh, when it comes to uh, analyzing the source of wealth. Uh, current solutions uh, are not ready for, for that at all and I'm not sure if there ever will be because um, the, the clients can have very different sources of wealth that, that should be really thought about and uh, it's not about the data mining and uh, you know just comparing numbers. So I would say as a startup you definitely need a Rectech solution. There are some that I could recommend. Um, but you cannot start a startup in an obliged uh, entity field without having one co-founder understanding the situation profoundly. Uh, I have to say, we, we were, for example, as a Fumbi, we were in a, this unlucky situation. When we started, we were not obliged persons. Um, but the financial institutions thought we, we should be obliged persons. So we started without uh, a deep understanding. We had a voluntary AML policy, um, even if we were not obliged. But uh, that's completely different than knowing the best practices, uh, knowing, the, knowing the people in the field, uh, attending the workshops and so on. And I wouldn't recommend to start in a crypto industry or, or similar without having a deep knowledge here and uh, probably if there is nobody among the co-founders that would be an expert in this topic, they should just uh, use the consulting services such as, such as here Lukash <laughs> may, may provide and some others um, to get knowledgeable. Consulting service, can you also outsource your AML? Could that be a possibility? Yes, but uh, then you don't have a co-founder understanding what's happening. That is true, but I could think about firms building up the expertise and basically having as a business model to provide AML services. So uh, just uh, just last remark from my side. Uh, yes, uh, that's definitely helpful, but still somebody from the board needs to be uh, needs to be completely knowledgeable and maybe not an expert, but understand deeply what's happening. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's about let's. Let's focus on the term KYC. 
know your client, know your customer. It's not necessarily just about, okay, collecting IDs, utility bills, some, some questionnaires about source of funds, source of wealth, information about you know, other bank accounts, etc. It's really about knowing who is your customer, why he's using your services, and um, what is um, um, usual for this transac- transaction behavior, this, this uh, client vis-a-vis your services, what is potentially suspicious, uh, what deviates from you know the expected transaction flow, and that's something you cannot really outsource to a third party. I see your point, but this with uh, unexpected transactions. I mean, most people have unexpected transactions, and those are probably not the uh, ones that you should be, should be suspicious about. Uh, illegal transactions, you probably try to hide them in the bulk of very normal-looking transactions instead of the few ones that stand out. At least, at least that's what my criminal mind will tell me to do. Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, for example, we, ha- we had a client uh, with uh, maybe a couple of thousand euros uh, only in, in, uh, in the cryptocurrencies held by us for him. And then uh, after some time he came back saying that, I, that he would like to buy maybe for 200, 300,000 euros. And of course I was curious uh, what's happening. And just after the, the conversation it emerged that those are not his funds. He, he didn't even understand that uh, borrowing money from some Israeli company, we don't even know who they are, and depositing it in cryptocurrency for them somehow is a regulated business activity that he shouldn't be doing and just discussing this client maybe maybe helped him um, get out of a lot of troubles in future and maybe from the regulator side maybe from the police side but maybe from the from the lender side who knows who, who they are you know so um, this is why you need somebody in the company who understands it and uh, can help the clients even uh, to understand what's happening. I'm happy you helped that client because he would be in big trouble otherwise. Yeah, actually that's the point that uh, a lot of people don't understand actually uh, what what is the AML and what criminal activity can actually do if they do certain kind of financial transactions and they, people don't understand that uh, money laundering is actually criminal activity. And so on. Uh, so that's one thing. But when uh, coming back to your uh, questions, a question that um, what startup or what company should do? Well, as, especially they should evaluate what what they are doing, what, what how biz, how their business is risky when com, uh, coming when it comes to AML. You know, whereas crypto companies they are high risky companies uh, for <laughs> they are, <laughs> but we know it. You know, actually, so when. When we are only only opening the bank account, it's quite complicated. So, so it's a quite high risky business, and you should think about it. So, without proper ML uh, program, uh, you can you cannot do it. But when you are a startup, uh, what you can do is that yeah, at the at the beginning uh, you can do it manually somehow, um, but um, it won't help you when it comes to transactions as such. And if you want to open a bank account, you need to, to prove to the bank, especially when we are working with our clients, that you have uh, monitoring services, you have coin tracking services, you have verification, very uh, high technical, like 
really verification process. So without it, you cannot do it. Um, so that's the point. What I can recommend is um, to actually to have budget for it, especially when you are doing with crypto. Without it, you cannot start working today and in this industry. Uh, and no, no bank will open your bank account actually, and won't work, they won't work with you because it's really risky if you do not have automated processes, how to track transactions, how to do proper KYC at the beginning. Uh, so without it, you cannot do it. And late, in later stages, when you would like to like really uh, know source of funds of your client and or source of wealth, yeah, that's the moment when the knowledge of this industry uh, uh, is like is demanded, and you need it uh, when you are the managing director of the company, or you need to have someone in the company who really understand AML in details. Uh, in Slovakia. Uh, you can outsource certain services, but you won't. Uh, but still, the managing director will be reliable for all losses, for all damages, and everything. Uh, but you can hire. So there will be the uh, managing director, or you can hire a professional ML officer who will be responsible for that. Uh, he'll, he has to be employed in your company, and then he will be communicating with financial intelligence unit and so on. So, but. Uh, as you guys said, without actually good knowledge of this industry and this ML, you won't be able to do it properly. Why is crypto considered so risky? What's the main issues here? Yeah, let me let me start on that. Um, it's it's considered risky for two reasons. One is that it can be risky, and the other one there is a there is a myth that is perpetrating since Silk Road. When, when crypto was somehow con connected in the media, um, and quite rightfully, <laughs> with, with those transactions, even if in the end Bitcoin was what helped prosecute uh, the, the founder of Silk Road and to convict him actually. But um, still it, it, it was connected in the, in the public uh, awareness with, uh, with crime. The reality, due to the chain analysis technology that we currently possess, uh, by we I mean the mankind, um, we know that crypto is actually less risky than the rest of the financial system. So if you, if you consider that uh, 2 to 5% of the global GDP is laundered every year, which uh, comes from the uh, UN data, uh, in, in crypto is uh, probably much lower than 1%. The current data say, for example, 0.15%. If you, if you leave five to 10 years to, for the number for the current year to grow up because of the newly discovered crimes, you, you could get to 0.5, 0 0.6%. Um, and chain, chain analysis technology actually prevents all the hackers from enjoying the hacked uh, and stolen funds. They, they rather return it saying it was a whitehead hack, getting some commission from that. So in, in general, crypto is l less risky, um, but if crypto was so widely uh, adopted by public, uh, this number would probably go, go up and maybe it could go to the average. Um, nevertheless, um, there are different business models in crypto, so that's something that is more 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 important to understand. If you operate a crypto ATM or a network of crypto ATMs, uh, in my mind, you should be obliged, and there should be some quite 
smaller limit for KYC redempt uh, transactions, maybe 500 euros, I don't know. Because if you, if you have you know, 50, 50 guys from, from a mafia uh, turning over cash for crypto and back, they can, they can turn over quite, uh, quite a massive amount. But if you have a business model where you receive money from a bank account of your customer and then return it to the bank account of your customer, then there is actually zero risk. That's what I meant too, because uh, most crypto accounts are small consumer accounts with maybe a couple of thousand euros. Uh, I mean, even if you can launder money, but the accounts are small with a couple of thousand euros, imagine how many hundreds of accounts you would need to be able to launder substantial amounts of money. Is it better to focus on the whales in the industry, basically, and ignore the small fish because they're just simply too small to be of any higher interest? Well, absolutely. I'm really unhappy about the limits that are considered best practice here. Uh, for example, for the source of wealth investigation, uh, in my mind, the proper limit would be maybe 50,000 euros um, in, in a total, total deposit of the client. But the current best practice on the market is 10,000 euros, which is not far away from a com completely reachable amount for a for a median customer or, or average customer. And uh, this means that there is a lot of work, uh, a lot of burden on the customer side and absolutely no result out of that. So I think the limits here should be connected to the business model and its riskiness as such. So the ATMs should have low limits. Uh, the services which operate a closed loop, like most of the time Fumbi does, uh, they're actually quite... Uh, out of risk completely. There, there's no no option how to how to loan the money through such service. But if you pay crypto to your customers as a crypto withdrawal, well, then you should just uh, mitigate the risk by applying uh, coin analysis, chain analysis measures, and and so on, and ongoing monitoring of the funds. So this is easy. It's just necessary to speak with the regulators together so that we all understand the situation and then set up the proper proper guidelines for everybody. If I may, just briefly comment on that. Oh yes, we have one more topic to cover. Okay, so just I'll be really quick to uh, cover this topic. So going back to the original questions, or a question in, in this area, why crypto is considered as risky? Uh, in my view, not every single crypto company is created equal, especially as Azura said. And the, the reason why um, all the industry is sort of afraid of working with crypto companies is because there are, there are some bad players in the uh, industry, but they're everywhere in every single sector, every single industry. It's not necessarily just the crypto. And yet we, we know a lot of um, uh, publicly available you know, stories and, and rumors about some, some crypto uh, investment scams, etc. But not every single crypto company is, is uh, operating within this uh, business model, within this shady area. So that's something um, we should um, keep in mind. True that. And the last questions. What are your predictions for AML threat trends through 2022 and beyond? How are regulation likely to evolve? This is pure speculation, clearly, but if I can have some last words for each, from each four of you on this topic before we round this off. 
But we partially already know the answer. That is true. Because it is AML6 directive which uh, will be adopted. Therefore, it will be more strict, unfortunately. Uh, and hopefully, the EU will uh, rethink the position in the future, but this is just a hope uh, that they will um, be more risk-based and they, they will evaluate the, the achievements of the policy and outcomes of the policy and the burden of, of the policies. But um, definitely we will see more strict regulation. Um, I would like to kidnap this question a little bit <laughs> and move it towards um, some, some political risk associated with the, with the strictness that we are observing. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, we are following multiple sanction lists. Um, in, in Slovakia, we are obliged to follow the European sanction list, but you know, there are also the US sanction list. Some companies used to follow Russian, Chinese uh, sanction lists as well, which are, strictly speaking, uh, geopolitical adversaries at best. And we have, for example, Turkey uh, in NATO, which uh, is our ally in a way, but at the same time doesn't, doesn't share the same uh, view on, um, on liberal democratic values as, as the, most of the Western countries. So imagine that we have this level of strictness where you just need to follow the list. And because of geopolitical situation, we are forced to follow Turkish uh, sanctions list, which basically means we will put <laughs> All the political opponents, uh, all the all the democratic uh, thinkers in Turkey uh, on sanction list, and we will not able to provide services to them. So this is something that is, in my mind, underway. And maybe maybe Sweden have a, have some experience now with the uh, Turkey uh, and with joining NATO and so on. Uh, but enough of that. Another point is that web free will come too. And even if we are strict, we have AML6 and everything, in three to five years, maybe, maybe six years, we will have somehow an um, um, intermediary free uh, internet payment ecosystem. And uh, I, I just hope that we, are, we, we will not be you know, caught uh, with our pants down, so to say, and <laughs> completely off guard. Well, I will maybe follow up what Lucas said about the regulation, uh, which is going really, uh, again, more restricted or strict. Uh, um, I like what GDPR made uh, in this world, that it made the world of personal data uh, protection more neutral, a technological neutral, and um, changed the way how it was uh, implemented in our world before and how it is now. So I would expect that uh, the AML policy and uh, the anti-money laundering legislative should change also this way, and maybe to change the philosophy how it should be implemented. Uh, I would not expect that it would happen soon, but uh, maybe when uh, the new technologies like Web3 will come more into, into the reality, they will have to realize that this is not the way how it works, and what I think it doesn't work, does not work today, the AML as such. We can see we discussed it and uh, the approach should be changed. Thank you. And Maria. Okay, so uh, answering your original question about the um, uh, regulation going forward, 
I believe there is one topic we haven't quite covered uh, during this uh, session when it comes to future regulations. So I'll just briefly mention it. And that's the um, register of um, central register of accounts maintained by uh, Ministry of uh, Finance, I, I guess. It's, it's going to be effective from uh, 1st of January 2023. Um, and that's um, actually a huge, huge topic uh, here in, in Slovakia because it may improve the um, cooperation of, you know, uh, especially uh, police and uh, other authorities within the criminal investigation. And it may actually help to... Um, um, free some some funds, uh, etc. And um, ideally speaking, we'll we'll see about it later. It, it may uh, it may help um, uh, financial institution to um, lower the the burden of you know uh, answering all those uh, formal requests. Whether okay, here is some some company we are investigating. Do you? Uh, maintain any account for this company and you have a lot of requests uh, on the table when, when you're a bank or at the financial institution in Slovakia. So uh, this process at least will be automated in, in a way that uh, it will, we will have some central register of accounts. Thank you. Now, any questions from the audience? We have a few minutes for a few questions from the audience. Anyone have any questions? Hello, I cannot agree more with what the speaker said, uh, but there is one topic which uh, was not touched. Uh, we are speaking about possibility to trace the uh, blockchain, but what about uh, like uh, currencies like Monero, like privacy coins? Isn't it uh, really a serious threat as well? Um, so currently, uh, privacy coins do not have uh, any big liquidity uh, or capitalization. Uh, so, from that from that perspective, it's not a threat yet. It, it could become though, and it, it it could be a threat in the same sense that cash is a threat. If cash was able to be transported all around the world uh, in a telecommunication channel, so uh, I think it 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 could be threat and. In my mind, the compromise between the uh, the current legacy system of uh, financial industry and the legal system around it and the law enforcement and crypto ecosystem will be that the privacy coins uh, would be probably somehow, if not outlawed, then definitely uh, pushed to the to the marginal stand of of being. I would say so. Yes and no. Uh, we will we will see those coins around, but uh, they will probably be, be somehow banned from growing to to be substantial. And if I may, there is some unwritten rule about such privacy coins as, as Monero, and there is uh, some sort of expectation from uh, financial um, uh, institutions vis-à-vis -vis crypto companies not support and not work with such uh, uh, currencies as, as part of some you know, due diligence process uh, from financial institution like bank vis-a-vis -vis crypto company as, as its clients. So that's, in, in my view, some unwritten rule. And I, w I would like to add that I would love if such privacy coins would still stay 
as a marginal part of the of the system because we are also facing the hard threat of a uh, democratic uh, system breakdown and so it's our hard insurance in case that the government in several EU countries are taken by undemocratic forces, which can happen, uh, then probably the citizens uh, of such countries would be really happy if they had uh, a privacy-focused networks. So uh, in, if we have good governance and good governments, it's, it's good to to not use such such systems, but as uh, soon as we get into troubles, it's also very good to have them at hand. Any more questions? We have time for one more question. Thank you very much for the uh, very wonderful discussion. I'm from the uh, Japanese embassy here in Bratislava. I used to work on the uh, establishing the uh, gaming industry regulation uh, in, in Japan, and uh, in that case, uh, we discussed a lot in Japan the how to treat with the suspicious transaction report. And of course, Japan also uses this uh, AML uh, report. But just for the sake of the understanding, to what extent this um, suspicious uh, uh, transaction report is putting the uh, the pressure on the uh, regulator uh, in this country? And do you have any idea how many? Uh, uh, suspicious transaction reports are reported to the uh, financial um, intelligence unit here in Slovakia. Thank you. Um, well, to the best of my knowledge, I, I can't give you the exact number from the top of my head, obviously. But we, we have uh, regulatory representatives here as well, so maybe they want to comment on that. But from my experience, uh, and I've briefly read the um, risk, uh, national risk assessment report, we're talking about some tens of thousands report, I guess, and um, if I'm not mistaken, just correct me if I'm wrong. And mostly we are uh, talking about uh, suspicious activity reports that are reported by banks directly. And there are just, just a few reported by other obliged entities as well. That's, that's my understanding, at least. I can say that for, for us, we filed just really a couple of them, and those are mostly, uh, you know, young people that's using right. wrong uh, ID of, of their friend rather than theirs. So uh, it's, it's, it's a mostly problem of banks, I guess. So we finished this session. And the next session will start in about 15 minutes due to the delay. So there won't be any real lunch break. We start in about 15 minutes with the next session. But first, I would like to thank Maria, Lukas, Lukas, and Juraj for this fantastic panel discussion on a very, very important topic, AML.